after the slaughter of the priests, God gives David the opportunity to show himself as a compassionate leader. While Saul continues to plan David's demise. This is the 48th sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our all current reading coming from 1 Samuel in chapter 23 as we move into chapter 23. The first 13 verses, Samuel 23, 1 through 13. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Keilah, and they rob the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and smite the Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines, and save Keilah. And David's men said unto him, Behold, we be afraid here in Judah, how much more than if we come to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord yet again, And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into thine hand. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their cattle and smote them with a great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. And it came to pass, when Abitar the son of Ahimelech fled to David in Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. And it was told Saul that David was come to Keilah, and Saul said, God hath delivered him into mine hand, for he is shut in by entering into a town that hath gates and bars. And Saul called all the people together to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. And he said to Abathar, the priest, Bring hither the ephod. Then said David, O Lord God of Israel, Thy servant had certainly heard that Saul seeketh to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as thy servant hath heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver thee up. Then David and his men, which were about six hundred, arose and departed out of Keilah, and went whithersoever they could go. And it was told Saul that David was escaped from Keilah, and he forbear to go forth. James in chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, to the end of the chapter, verse 17, by the same spirit, by inspiration of God, James says this, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boasting. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away. But the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. By this time, Saul's madness had now reached its pinnacle. In a fit of narcissistic rage, he commands his foot soldiers to slay 85 of God's holy priests. Remember, we saw that in chapter 22. But to his frustration, these foot soldiers because they still had some conscience, they refuse. 
which paved the way for the wicked Doeg, the Edomite, to take up the challenge by killing 85 of God's holy priesthood. And this brings Saul to the point of no return. He is now completely out of his mind with rage, completely out of his mind to kill David, ready to kill anyone that gets in his way from killing David. Simply, he's out of control, and this is what sin does. It brings a man to the brink of insanity, out of control. And as a result of his rejection of both God and God's law, Saul's rule had become more than just simply oppressive and tyrannical. We have been seeing Saul as a tyrannical king, a tyrant. But he's gone beyond with this movement, killing the priests of God. He has become downright bloodthirsty. And while Saul's leadership influence was failing, David's leadership influence was advancing. And yet David's full potential as Israel's future king had not yet been realized. One would imagine that after defeating Goliath of the Philistines and the entire army and bringing the head of Goliath to Jerusalem, that his influence as Israel's king, as, as Israel's leader, would be solidified. But, but it was not, not yet at least. But these many providential trials were to be given to him because God had orchestrated these many providential trials in order to further mature David. The one trial wasn't enough, two weren't enough. Now, David was being tried over and over and over by this orchestration of God's providential trials, which would then finally catapult David into the limelight of the entire nation of Israel so that he would be obviously and completely seen as the king. So as a result, God provides at this point still another opportunity for David to show his leadership excellency by raising up the Philistines once again. Now remember, God is raising up the Philistines here, and he's raising them up there in order to show David's prowess and leadership capabilities. Then they told David, saying, Behold, verse 1, the Philistines fight against Keilah and they rob the threshing floor. So not only are they fighting against Keilah, they're trying to decimate Keilah. The Philistines were at it again and this time they were robbing the food supply of David's brethren. Keilah was, was a fortified city located in the tribe of Judah which was located on the road to Hebron. And now they were being besieged by the wicked Philistines. Now the robbing of the food supplies, these threshing floors, that was the food supply. The robbing of these food supplies was a common tactic among the Philistines and among many of these wicked tribes. They would not only destroy the people, they would take the entire food supply from them. Adam Clark explains, he says, this was an ancient custom of the Philistines, Midianites and others. When the corn was ripe and fit to be threshed, and they had collected it at the threshing floors, which were always in the open field, then their enemies came upon them and spoiled them of the fruits of their harvest. So they just took everything. As soon as it was ripe, they came in. Could you imagine you have this nice farm, this nice field, and your neighbor comes and just wipes you out of everything just before the picking. In other words, the Philistines were not only stealing the food, they were stealing the labor that went into producing the food, that went into the growing of the food, the caring for the food, the maintenance of the food, and then for the harvesting of the food, they took it upon themselves. And this was a tactic of all these wicked nations and governments. The labor and goods of one's own hands are often confiscated by the wicked. And in America, this is done through unbiblical taxation, different policies, regulations, licensing fees, etc. And it is a means of oppressive control 
and subjugation. This is how a nation subjugates its people. In the same way as the Philistines were plundering apostate Israel under the failing leadership of Saul, wicked Saul, bloodthirsty Saul, American citizens, we today, and those citizens of every other nation that forgets God, are being plundered. It's interesting to me today that in the United States, there's such an overabundant concern, almost a panic, that another nation may enslave us. China. Oh, China might enslave us. Russia might enslave us. But what so many fail to understand is that Americans are already, for the most part, enslaved by the oppressive tactics of their own government to a very high extent. Frederick Hayek said many, many years ago, the economist, that we are on the road to serfdom. We are on the road to slavery. And that was years and years ago. Israel was was so frightened of becoming slaves to the Philistines that they were blinded to the reality that they were already slaves to Saul. Now consider some of the determining factors which leads a nation down the slippery slope of tyranny. Now let me define tyranny in this way. I define tyranny as any form of government, not just a, a tyranny of a king, but any form of government One where there is a king or a president or a republic or a democracy or an ecclesiocracy or an oligarchy. Any one of them which oversteps their legal bounds dictated by God's law resulting in the oppression of the people and the eviscerating of their liberty. That's what I define as tyranny. So how did Israel fall so low as to become so blinded and so dysfunctional and so apostate As a nation, what are some of the specifics? Well, we may understand generally why a nation falls away from God and why he judges a nation. We need to look further at some of the specifics. Sometimes we say, well, it's because we failed in this way or because we abort our babies or because we elect ungodly rulers or because of Well, what are some of the specifics? Firstly, the state's takeover of the personhood of the individual. That's first and foremost. The starting point for total domination is the state's takeover, the subjugation of the individual. Editor Ruben Alvarado, commenting in Friedrich Stahl's incredible book called Private Law, explains it this way. And I find his insight absolutely amazing. Notice what he says. The starting point is the right of the person. This right of the person is the primeval, inalienable right, the basics of all further rights in civil society. It entails integrity, freedom, honor, legal capacity, and protection of acquired rights. This basic setup is inherent in each individual person. Upon it is erected the positive rights which go into every separate civil constitution. Now Stahl, in his book, adds in the chapter on universal human value, says this, The image of God in man is the final ground of the right of the person. In it, lies the application on the civil order not only to preserve the rights necessary merely for the existence of the person, but also to 
elevate him to an even higher level of entitlement, freedom, and gratification, which we describe as primeval or original foundational rights. So Israel's downfall began when they lost their fear of God. No longer had they, have a, had, they had a a personal connection with God as to reverence Him, to see Him as holy, just, and good, and righteous, and sovereign, and majestic. They lost their fear of God. They lost a fundamental component of their relationship with God. And this is also true for Americans and many within the Christian church. They have lost the fear of God. God is no longer described as as an awesome God of justice and and judgment, but only as a God of love and, and toleration, which is a perverted toleration because now God tolerates everything. Oh, we got to just love everybody no matter who they are, no matter what they say, no matter what they think, no matter what they do. And so only one aspect of God's nature and character is focused upon because it is the most agreeable to the sinful mind. God is love and He will love you no matter what. And He loves everybody the same, no matter what. And we have to pray for all of the wicked people, even if they refuse to repent and blaspheme daily, no matter what, we pray for them because we must love them because we perverted our own understanding of the scriptures where it says pray for your enemies. Well, sometimes we pray imprecatorily for our enemies. But because the Christian today has no discernment, cannot make a definitive understanding of who's the Philistine and who's not, they just want to love everybody. And while God's love is the essence of God's nature... He is no less a God who commands all men to fear Him and tremble at the holiness of His word. God is love. Yes, it is true. But He's not only love. When Moses gave Israel their final marching orders before they entered into the pagan land of the Canaanites, He told them this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9 and following. Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them to thy sons and thy sons' sons, especially the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb, when the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live upon the earth, and that they may teach their children. Notice the fundamental rule of faith is to fear God, to reverence God. And he repeats that in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 28 and 9. And the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spake unto me, and the Lord said unto me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken unto thee. They have well said all that they have spoken, all that there were such an heart in them. Notice what Moses is praying. He's begging God. He's saying, Oh, I just wish, I just pray that there was such a a heart in them, an intention in them, that they would fear God. God repeats this. He says, I too share in your desire. And God says, Oh, that there was such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them. You see, if you fear me, it will be well with you and with their children forever. But when you hear the thunderings of Sinai from the pulpit, Today, people don't want to know from it. Oh, that pastor's too hard. Oh, that pastor is, is, just, is just, just so full of uh, fire and brimstone. Now, one of the character traits and result of the new birth is the fear of God. God tells Jeremiah this in Jeremiah 32, 39, And I will give them one heart 
And one way that they may fear me forever, and that means honor God, reverence God, for the good of them and of their children after them. So you parents, if you don't show respect for God in all your life, in everything you do, honoring God so that they would learn to honor God and honor their parents, for this is the will of God concerning them. If that's not coming from the top down, this is why things unravel in the culture. Stahl, the author, again explains that the fear of God is the sustaining factor of the culture. Think about it. The sustaining factor. If you want the culture to be maintained and not unravel into chaos, we must bring back the fear of God. Notice what he says. European Christianity had the fear of God as the motivation for the public order, the unconditional devotion to God's command and ordinances and zeal to glorify God. Recent times prior to the revival of the Christian faith, that is, the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century, had eliminated this motivation. A motivation from the pulpit, from the preacher, for the people to fear God. He continues, every trace of the recognition of an unconditional divine commandment, every obligation to fulfill the will of the living God disappeared from it. Only the recognition of men and their convictions and opinions and the care for men remained as guidelines. That's just moralism, by the way. He continues, those in the area of religion only tolerance remained as a recognized and praised motivation, not, however, the zeal for God's word and God's honor that previously was the only such recognized motivation. Now, you understand what he's saying here? He says, in the modern era, in the area of religion, only tolerance was recognized and praised as a motivation. So now from the pulpits, you're hearing, tolerate everyone. We have to be a polytheistic society, a pluralistic society. Not, there's one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one God. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything else is antichrist. You don't hear that anymore. We need a new reformation. And what happened during the reformation was, anything that smacked against the truth of God's word was anathema. Today, let's just be ecumenical and let's just embrace everybody. We don't want to offend anyone. God forbid we offend anyone. God forbid we make someone feel bad. What we have before us today is the replacement of the truth of God and the fear of God for the fear of man and the toleration of wickedness, that limitless toleration of all things. So by seeking a king after the model of the pagans, Israel was saying that they would tolerate whatever it took, whatever subjugation and oppression it would take to defeat their dreaded Philistines. We'll have Saul to oppress us as long as he defeats the Philistines. So when Samuel told them what they would face by choosing such a wicked king, they were ready and willing to tolerate just about anything as long as they got what they wanted. Make us comfortable. So once the fear of God and the motivation to obey His will is lost, toleration becomes the tyrant. That's what we have today. Toleration becomes the tyrant. Stahl explains the evil of unlimited toleration when he says this, quote, Tolerance has no boundaries. 
Irreligious doctrines have equal rights and equal honor, and even deistic and pantheistic doctrines have every stripe is to be recognized as Christian and as a church as long as he or she considers itself to be so. On the other hand, fidelity to divine truth to maintain the true revelation of God finds no consideration when it maintains its true measure, much less when it in any way oversteps its boundaries. It is the same in the political arena. The state is based solely on human rights, not on higher goals. It is the sympathy for all of the opposition against all authority. He lacks the recognition of unconditional commands for the legal order. From this springs opposition to the death penalty and in fact to any sort of punishment. In the absence of a higher command that the criminal must be punished, that where blood is shed, blood must be shed, this becomes an institution for improving the criminal or a means of providing for the security of others. From this springs the claim for unconditional divorce, making the happiness of the spouses, their sense of what is agreeable, the decisive concern, and not the higher unconditional command that what God has joined together, let not man tear asunder. From this everywhere stems a revolt against all discipline, against all restrictions established for the fulfillment of a higher order of life. So we've replaced God's higher order for what man thinks is better. We've exchanged the truth for a lie. And we sit and we still tolerate it. From the pulpit. From the churches. And so without the fear of God, there can be no fulfillment of humanity as God intended it. Without the fear of God, humanity cannot and will not achieve its highest potential. Humanity will not only lose its freedom, but its honor its integrity, its legal protection of the rights that God has given to man. And once humanity loses its basis for being human, created in the image of God, humanity becomes a slave. That's where we're headed. Stahl again explains, he says, the complete lack of recognition of these rights located in the essence of the person is slavery. Slavery consists in the treatment of men, not as persons, not as an end in itself, but as a thing, as a mere means for others. It is therefore to be rejected out of hand. Now the essence of this this critical race theory is in fact slavery, since it views men in groups, not as individuals. But this idea of slavery can also be applied to the mandates of the CDC for an experimental drug given credence by the FDA, supposedly dubbed as a preventative for a politicized pandemic, and once individuals are defined as groups instead of individuals, as in the vaccinated, as opposed to the unvaccinated, slavery is just around the corner. When men lose the freedom to choose, they are no longer free. The second reason why nations, ours included, are deteriorating, and this is not just a United States epidemic, but a global reality, is the result of the state's takeover of the family. Of the family! The essence after the individual of civilization. You see, when Israel desired a king modeled after the nations of the pagan world, they were seeking, either knowingly or unknowingly, a ruler which would legislate policies for the dissolution of the family and its redefinition. The pagan state believes that it is the essence of the family. In fact, it believes it is the family. And so the state acts as if it is the father, the mother, the parent of the citizenry. 
possessing and determining for themselves full authority over the nation, viewing individuals as children. In the eye of the state, we are little children. We're not able to make decisions for ourselves. They must make decisions for us because they are the, they are the parent. They are the philosopher kings, the parents. Then they seek to redefine what the family is and how the family is to be structured. Let's redefine the family. Two men, two women, three men, one woman, whatever, a dog, a cat, a cow. Let's just redefine the family and let's legislate it. This means that the state believes its duty is to protect each and every citizen beyond what the scripture says they are limited to. They are limited by what God says. But now we tolerate anything that the the state says, or the Supreme Court says, or the Congress says, or even now the pulpits, what they're saying. Well, you know, we don't want to offend anybody, of course, because uh, we need the money because we have that new building project. And it's not even funny. It's downright destructive. It's so destructive, and we are on the brink. I kid you not, we are on the brink. This is why we see the state mandating things that are a, vi- are a violation to our personal freedom and our God-given rights as private persons. And remember what Samuel told the Israelites. What he told the elders, when they sought after Saul, remember what he said. And Samuel said, this is the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself. There he is. He's the daddy. He's going to appoint his sons to do whatever he wants. For his chariots and for his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots, and will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties, and will set them to the ear his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots, and he will take your daughters to be confectioners, and to be cooks, and to be bakers, and he will take your manservants and your maidservants and your goodliest young men, your asses, and put them all to his work. A man wanting to be his God, wanting to own everything, the family included. So once the state establishes itself as the overseer of the family, it is then able to mandate compulsory education, vaccination, and anything else that it believes it has jurisdiction over. This includes many of the institutions and even private businesses. So once the state establishes itself as the family, the true family becomes the threat. The true family now is the threat. While the family unit can never be eradicated entirely, its dominion and influence can be greatly diminished. Thirdly, the final move by the state for total dominion and total domination and total suppression, in addition to its takeover of the person and the family, is the takeover of private property. This is the essence of communism and socialism. Israel was willing to be taxed to the point of their possessions being confiscated by Saul as a trade-off for victory over the Philistines. Notice 1 Samuel 8.14 And Saul will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants and he will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take the tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his servants. A tenth. That was blasphemous. What is it now? 50%? And that wasn't done overnight. It was done incrementally because the church was sleeping. But while men... So tears, the church had to be sleeping. So while the church slept, the men sowed tears. The wicked came and sowed the tears. Now once David hears of the crisis in Keilah, he immediately asks God for his counsel. And again, notice the display of David's fidelity. The godly character of, of this man. 
His reliance upon God in the face of extreme duress. His trust. He immediately asks for God. He doesn't say, okay, we've got a situation. Let's go get him. And this is so significant in that it shows us that David has an open communication with God. He was in open communication throughout this whole trial with God. In other words, he was comfortable speaking to God in light of every issue. Are we comfortable speaking to God? Daily, talking with God, while we're driving, while we're meditating, while we're doing this, are we ta- or, we, or do we have to sit down and open the Bible and read a prayer and then do the... No, no, that's, that's ceremonial Christianity. It is not relational. David was comfortable with his God. He talked to his God as, as, a, as a child would go to the daddy. Say, Papa, what should I do? David was comfortable with his God. Now, David's motivation is not at all political. That was not his motivation. He was not seeking to go to to Keilah to establish himself as as their deliverer or their leader. Now, of course, that was a result. That was not David's motive. Not at all. David was moved by compassion. He sees that the Philistines are thrashing his brethren. And what does he want? He, He wants to help them, but he won't run until he's bidden by his God. A compassionate man. Now, even though David was not quite sure whether or not the people of Kilah would deliver him into Saul's hand, he was ready to go fight for them. Even with that question, David still seeks to defend the city of Kilah, which is once again in direct contrast to Saul, who just destroyed an entire city in the last chapter. And so, in order to check his ambition for defending his brethren, the first thing that David does, he asks God for his counsel. Therefore, verse 2, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and smite these Philistines? Now, how did he ask for that counsel? How, how did he ask God for this counsel? How did he pray? Did he kneel down and pray and wait for a word to God to come to him? Well, I, I don't believe that this is what he did at all, since it was not customary or the general practice of the future king to receive an answer from God directly when he had the priest at his disposal. So I believe that he asked Abitah, the son of the slain priest, Ahimelech, for an answer. Now, whether or not David asked Abitah and received an answer from him or not, or whether he asked God directly and received an answer from God directly is not the lesson here, nor is it at the point, I believe, that God is making. What God, I believe, is teaching is that whenever we contemplate defending our brethren or going to war against the wicked of the world, we must ask God first if that is the right plan of action. Even as a man of action, and that's what David was. David was a man of action, but before he was a man of action, he was a man of prayer. So as a man of action, even though he was that, He pauses to ask God's counsel, knowing that if he is to be victorious, God had to be with him. He was not going to rely upon his men or his strength. He's going to rely on God. The practical lesson here concerns those in authority when they are faced with a potential battle, they are to inquire of God and his ministers whether or not the battle is biblical. This certainly was not the case in many of the situations that America found herself in. Historically, or even today, when she finds herself in that same predicament. Are we to fight or not to fight? America would have been quite better off if they would have engaged God in prayer before rushing to war. She would have been engaged in far fewer wars if the powers that be would have inquired of the Lord whether those wars were biblically sanctioned or not. 
Now the answer of the Lord comes back to David and it's crystal clear. Go. He wants him to fight. For the battle is for the defense of your brethren, not for some corrupt nation who knows not the Lord, like the Ukraine. So God tells David to go. And the Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines and save Keilah. Now consider the first response of David's men. And David's men, verse 3, And David's men said unto Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we come to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Only 600 of them. We're going to go now against the Philistines? We're afraid. They were man enough to tell David, you know, we're, we're, we're concerned. They were fearful. Justifiably so. It seems as if they might have been doubly fearful of both going against the Philistines and opening up themselves to Saul's wrath once he found out where they were. And they knew he would find out. Saul had his spies everywhere. We've already seen that. But here again we have a dramatic contrast between David and Saul. While Saul previously had threatened his men to join him in war, if you remember, he said, if you don't join me in war, I'll cut you up just like I cut up this animal. David does no such thing. Instead, he wants to comfort his men and encourage them to go to war with him because God had told him that they would be victorious. So he inquires of God whether or not they will be successful and then he encourages his men to join him. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't say to them that you'll be like this heifer that I've cut up into pieces. No, he encourages them. Then David inquired of the Lord yet again. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into thine hands. So he gets the second time. God tells him, you will be victorious. So David neither forces nor mandates anyone to do anything that their conscience forbade. He's a man who he looked at his people like people with conscience before God. This is true leadership as opposed to unbridled tyranny. Mandating a man or a population of men to do something that is in violation of their conscience is sin. And it is an oppressive evil against a person who is made in the image of God and who can only be accountable to God for his conscience. The Westminster Confession explains it this way. God alone is the Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. So armed with the blessings of God and the security of his word that David and his men would be victorious, they go and they fight for Keilah against the Philistines and subdue them. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their cattle and smote them with a great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. And note the reversal. While the Philistines were seeking to ravage the foodstuffs of Keilah, they are instead deprived of their cattle whom they relied upon to feed their own people. And this is lex talionis. This is an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So they were going to steal the food from Keilah and God takes the food from them. The Philistines thought to deprive God's people of food, but to their surprise, in their consternation, they were fed with their own wickedness 
and their food was taken from them. So God had now provided all of the apparatus necessary for David to assume his legitimate role as the future king of Israel. Now, while Saul was alienated from the priests of God and then killed them, David was now being served by the faithful priest who acted as his prophet and counselor, Abitar. The Reverend Walter Chantry comments, he says, Isolated from God's servants and the means of grace, evil Saul had the company of evil spirits who manipulated his moods, his words, and his actions. Under demonic influence, Saul became a man driven to kill his God-appointed successor. The Reverend Richard Phillips adds this, he says, In contrast to Saul's dilemma, David supplied by the available means of God's grace was guided and helped in his kingly role by the prophet and the priest. David was now equipped as a righteous servant and savior of the people, the needy people of Israel. The true king of Israel was to rule by God's word in close company with the prophets and priests. We see why the Davidic kingdom came to its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who not only is king of God's people, but is himself our true prophet and perfect high priest as well, end quote. Now verse 6 emphasizes the fact that when Abitar came to David, the Bible is very clear, he came with the ephod, which gave him the legitimacy as the priest of God. To have that ephod was the vehicle to ask God for his counsel. The reason why we read it here in verse 6 and not where he initially came to David may be because he is reestablishing his legitimacy as God's priest. Now, this linen ephod was a robe-like covering used by the priest to identify them as priest and as God's prophet, and it was used to discover God's will in matters of grave importance. So the priest would put on the ephod, he would be looked at as the priest of God, the prophet of God, he would pray to God, God would give him the answer, and then he would give the answer to whoever was inquiring. And this is the reason for, I believe, mentioning it just before verse 7, because David is going to inquire of God, I believe, by using the ephod. But this great victory did not come without consequence. Saul hears of David's great feat of courage in delivering the people of Keilah and hatches an evil plan to trap him within the city walls in verse 7 and 8. And Saul calls all the people together, notice in verse 8, to war, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. So the first thing that Saul does, he calls, he gathers all the people, he gathers all the people together to scour the countryside in order to hunt for David. He commands everyone to be involved. Notice, it doesn't say that he called his army together. He's calling everybody. He wants his whole army and everyone else to scour the countryside in order to hunt for David at Keilah. He commands everyone to be involved in his evil scheme in the same manner as Hitler commanded everyone in his treachery to spy on everyone and everywhere. And we see this throughout history, even in our own day, when neighbors turn against neighbors by turning them over to the wicked state. Secondly, note how Saul's secret plan is not so secret. Even with the aid of the general population, by God's grace, his wicked plan is exposed, and David gets wind of it. In order to prepare David for this confrontation, God does not allow Saul's wicked scheme to be hidden. It is made manifest. He's doing it in darkness, but the light will expose it. And this is how God protects his people. Let the wicked scheme. It matters little, for God will protect his own. And that's what we hope for. That's what we count on. 
God warns David so that he and his men can pray and then prepare themselves for any assault or an escape in this, in this instance from God's army. And this is our confidence and our comfort. God does not only feed us with the bread of life through the Lord Jesus Christ. He feeds us with knowledge and wisdom in what is about to happen in our lives and how we are to, once these things do come about, how we are to navigate the wicked schemes of evil men. Because he will not leave us ignorant. Amos gives us this assurance. In Amos chapter 3, verse 7, Surely the Lord God will do nothing except that he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. By God's grace, Saul's plan is revealed. And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him, and he said to Abathar the priest, Bring hither the ephod. Now notice what he's saying to Abathar. He's not telling Abathar to put the ephod on and come and let me inquire of you. He's saying, Bring me, bring me the ephod. And this is a very curious request. David was not technically a priest, nor was he technically a prophet, and yet he calls for the ephod, I believe, in order to put it on himself and inquire directly to the Lord as to what action to take. And again, I believe that we see here an eschatological topology where David is symbolizing the Lord Jesus in his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. He now inquires as to what he is to do in light of Saul's wicked plan to destroy him, even at the bitterness of Keilah's attempt when Saul arrives to betray David into Saul's hands. So he inquires as to what he might do in light of Saul's wicked plan to destroy him and the entire kingdom from the counsel of the Almighty. We'll examine that next and his prayer and God's answer when we return to our exposition on the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.